One, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Hello, I'm Suzanne Jane for Green Left. Thank you for joining us. When Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor, independent MPs, handed power to a minority Labor government after the 2010 election, many Australians became well aware of what it actually means for the country if independent or minor powers hold the balance of power in Canberra. With the 2022 election looming and the Morrison government leading votes and credibility amidst the massive COVID crisis, the people being forced back to work when they're still sick, the balance of power is looking like it may well be more important than ever. One party running an unprecedented number of candidates for the 2022 election coming up very shortly is the Australian Greens. David Subridge, New South Wales Greens MP, joins us now. David, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. It's good to chat. Now, we're glad to see that you are okay after your COVID diagnosis before Christmas. May I ask how you're feeling and how your family and everyone's going with it all? Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't the ideal lead up to Christmas. We were looking for a bit of a family break and a bit of time away together, but we had time sort of uh, in the house, uh, sort of together. Uh, look, it was it was pretty tough for about a week, you know, having the flu-like symptoms and overcoming those. I found it knocked me around um, for a couple of weeks after that, um, more sort of energy levels and the like, but uh, I think I'm, I'm over it now, hopefully... Um, uh, with the energy and enthusiasm we need this year. But, uh, you know, there was that week of kind of being knocked around quite quite, quite seriously with kind of flu-like symptoms, which I got over. And then I think that that loss of energy and um, lethargy, I've never had as many nana naps in my life as I did in the first week of this year. <laughs> but, you know, over it now. And, and, and uh, you know, one of the things is it's, there's just such a wide array of responses people have to it despite putting all the best um, isolation measures in place in our house, um, both my kids and my partner got it. My kids kind of shrugged it off in, you know, a day or a little bit over a day, 48 hours. But my wife and I took a bit longer to get over. Given the Morrison's response to COVID, which can only be described as mangled and having just been through it with your own family, what do you make of it all? How how, How do you think it should have looked, the COVID response? Well, it was more of a chaotic non-response than an actual response, even as we were going through that as a family for, you know, 10 days. The public health messaging fundamentally changed. The level of support basically fell away in the the kind of 10 days that our family were going through the experience of COVID. And and largely what we've seen is the dismantling of any efforts to control COVID, an active, ideologically driven dismantling of efforts. And that's putting huge pressure on our public hospitals in particular. Um, we're seeing that in the sort of level of overwork that nurses are having. And now we're seeing, you know, across the economy, workers being told to go back to work even when they, they could be sick or they could be exposing their, their fellow workmates to illness. And, and meanwhile, the, the response seems to be to privatise everything. Look after your own health, buy your own rat test, um, upload your own results. And the only thing the state promises is to fine you if you get it wrong. So um, it's a pretty extraordinary development, isn't it? You quote Peter Burner, don't give a rat's ass.com.au. Yeah, I think the, the fact, I mean, people are sort of looking and realising that actually these state and federal liberal leaders don't actually care about us. Uh, we're all kind of expendable to them, that they've got their, their economic goals, their, 
for their corporate backers that they want to keep keep running and everything else, the planet, the people, all kind of expendable. And it's been pretty much exposed in, in the last few months. We've often wondered what it might take for people to vote in a way that is other than against their own interests, I guess we're about to find out. So coming back to the balance of power question in the Greens campaign, you sent out an APB back in December to all of your supporters and interested parties talking about your balance of power campaign. And it said in part, people love our policies, but they can't see how we can get them across in Parliament, how we can get them across the line. Now, focusing purely on those policies for a moment, you outlined the three priorities for the Australian Greens as one, a federal ICAT, two, climate action, and three, affordable homes. Just starting with the federal ICAT, it's painfully obvious to all of us that it's desperately needed and more than wanted, more than warranted. Uh, but, but how are you going mm. to get that across the line, particularly when it comes to a vote? even if you have the balance of power and there's many other MPs in the room that may not necessarily have the same definition of corruption as the rest of us. Both major parties have gotten away for a number of years with um, kicking the can down the road on this. What, what do you think is different this time? What makes you think Australia's ready for a federal ICAC mm. now and that you can get it across the line now and so many others have failed? Well, I, I think one thing I do bring to the federal parliament if I get sent there by the people in New South Wales is the, the experience of New South Wales politics where ICAC has actually been critical to exposing corruption and it's a place where you can have a, a kind of independent analysis of some of the, the, the worst excesses of Labor or the coalition. So, um, and I think that experience in New South Wales is extremely valuable and, and you know, people, people in this state love and defend ICAC uh, and, and we only got it um, at a state level when there was a minority government. It was literally forced upon a then uh, liberal minority government by a group of independents in the lower house in there um, about over 20 years ago now. So that's how we achieved that kind of fundamental institutional reform at a state level. And I'm quite certain that's the way we will achieve it at a federal level when neither party has a majority. Um, and um, whoever is in government, and it's my hope it's a minority Labor government, um, we actually say to them, well, you want to be in government, here's the deal, fully fully empowered, um, fully resourced, independent corruption body modelled on the New South Wales example and one that can go back in time. So, you know, that's the experience. We got it through minority government and the brave use of balanced power at a state level, and that's I'm pretty sure how we'll get it at a federal level. Coming to your second policy point in relation to real action on climate, the, Green, the Greens, as you pointed out, helped break the political impasse on renewable energy in New South Wales, and you've long had a policy to deliver renewable energy jobs and infrastructure at both state and federal level. So how do you intend to do that federally, especially given the path to Canberra to reducing emissions is already strewn with several prime ministers and lined with fossil fuel lobbies, lobbyists with appearing they've appeared our bottomless checkbooks, which might not affect your vote, but clearly it affects some others. How, how do you intend to do that? Well, well, there's no doubt that the fossil fuel lobby realise that without political support, their time in the sun is pretty much over. So they're willing to throw billions and billions of dollars at the efforts they can make to keep their stranglehold on, pop, on politics, keep their multi-billion dollar concessions coming out of the federal government and try and do all they can to forestall a renewable future. So I don't pretend it's an easy path. Um, but, you know, I, I was, I was uh, in many ways amazed how at the end of 2020, 
we had a kind of breakthrough moment in the New South Wales Parliament where we managed to legislate for a statewide renewable energy roadmap, which um, all of the modelling suggests is, is on its way to delivering $30 billion worth of renewable energy infrastructure across New South Wales. Now, we, we managed to get that by just some um, hard, sensible, um, focused politics. In this case, we had a, you know, a, a liberal environment minister um, willing to take a bit of a political chance and push forward an agenda. Um, we then in, uh, were part of ensuring that it wasn't just a Liberal Party initiative, but indeed we had the Greens and ultimately um, um, Labor also backing the initiative. And the only opposition really came from One Nation in New South Wales. Now, all of us had a role in actually um, stepping up to the plate when it came to climate. We did a critical uh, amendments that we had to drive the hydrogen energy future, to put at least $50 million of initial public money in, into hydrogen energy, um, to ensure that there was wide-scale Aboriginal um, engagement and economic empowerment, because of course all these projects are built on Aboriginal land, but also to hopefully put in place um, a policy framework that if um, Labor, the Greens, and in this case, the Liberal Party could all sign on to, is gonna survive any one government. And I think that's the kind of hard politics we need at a federal level. We need to actually be, be knuckling down and doing the hard politics, working across the um, aisle if we can, because we need a renewable energy package, a climate package that's going to survive any one parliament. Is that going to be bloody hard with Labor taking fossil fuel donations and the coalition absolutely committed to fossil fuel donations? Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be anything other than very hard. But I would have said the same about it at a state level three years ago, if you'd asked me, and we managed to get that breakthrough. It's it's kind of what hard parliamentary politics is about. A lot of stuff gets put in the too hard basket through lack of leadership too, doesn't it? It, it does, and you have to seize these moments, you know. Um, if, if, if we had played some narrow politics at the end of 2020, because you know, the package wasn't perfect, um, there was far too much focus on private investment, um, far too little focus on, on public investment, but we managed to secure amendments that said, you know, at any time in the future, it can be as readily accessed by public investment as private investment, but it wasn't a perfect package, but it was a hell of a lot better than what we had on the table before then. And, and it's already working in driving that investment in renewable energy future. So, you know, that, that's, I suppose, why we, we want some you know, hopefully skilled parliamentarians to get in there and do those hard politics, because we have a narrow window to address this climate crisis. We have a lot of institutional forces against us um, and we need to somehow make it work. The third arm of your policy platform relates to affordable housing. Now, you've said that you believe safe and secure housing is a human right, as many of us believe, and that you intend to use the balance of power, should you hold it after the election, to force governments to build a million more affordable homes and fix the broken tax system, which in part I presume you mean negative gearing. Well, I guess my first question to you in relation to housing is, what kind of housing do you want those million homes to be? What's the split between mm. public, social, private housing for affordable rental? And do you have a budget projection for it or even a ballpark figure of where you're going with that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a costed policy. Of course, the, the million homes is over more than a decade. So it's a long-term project to, to build a million homes. The majority of the homes are intended to be public housing homes, so owned by public housing authorities, and doing that in partnership with the states and territories. 
because, you know, you, you don't have to go very far to realise we have a public housing crisis across the country. Waiting lists of, um, you know, up to eight years, sometimes longer in New South Wales, more than 60,000 people on the waiting list in New South Wales, and that's mirrored across the rest of the country. But it's not only about public housing. Um, it's also about having uh, a series of packages that can work with community housing providers and also um, a really innovative model where there's effectively a partnership arrangement, a kind of trust model where people on a middle income uh, can go in partnership with the federal government and a large federally federal housing trust and buy a new property for in the order of $300,000 and have their own home for an equity injection of $300,000, which is the kind of figure that's affordable for people on an ordinary wage. And then they would hold that property in partnership with the Commonwealth Housing Trust. But for all intents and purposes, while they lived in it, it would be their own home. They're free to renovate it They're, you know, with consent. They're free to um, um, paint it and have pets and run it as their own home. And it's a really affordable way for particularly people on middle incomes um, to access uh, an affordable housing market in that partnership with the Commonwealth Government. You know, how do we fund these things? Well, I mean, a critical part of these kind of big spending programs is also having a commitment to taxing corporations. More than a third of large corporations paid zero tax for the last two years. Um, we have billions and billions of dollars going to subsidise particularly fossil fuel corporations so it's ensuring that we actually tax corporations effectively. We put a particular taxing cost on fossil fuel corporations, and that provides the kind of funding stream we need to build that level of public housing. Um, but, you know, this is something the Commonwealth Government used to do um, in the immediate post-war era. The main government level that built public housing was actually the Commonwealth Government. They've retreated the field from the field in the last few decades, and we want to bring them back. And, and make sure that we have that long-term commitment to building public housing because it's that public housing, those trust-like structures, those community housing structures, if we build enough of those, that's one of the main ways, together with those getting rid of those crooked tax um, concessions for property investors, that's one of the main ways we pop some of the, the um, excessive housing bubble as well. You mentioned the tens of thousands of people that are currently housed in a range of fashions that are waiting for public housing on various waiting lists across the country. And it's a 10-year project. That is a very long time. Any thoughts on any kind of support package or what should be happening to help those people avoid homelessness in the meantime? Because as you know, mm. homelessness is increasing exponentially, especially for older women like me. Mm. So I'd like to hear what the Greens intend to do that might help those people out in the shorter term. Well, I, I want to assure you that the concept is to build a minimum 100,000 new public and affordable homes every year. So it's a major building package, which would start from year one. Um, so those effects will be felt, you know, immediately with, with fresh housing coming online. But it's part of a broader package that we have about dealing with the inequality crisis that we're facing. Um, we, we have a, an, an uncompromising commitment to ensuring that the social security minimum benefit is in the order of 80, at least $80 a day, which is almost enough to live on with a life of dignity. Um, but, but we don't pretend any one particular policy package is going to deal with the, the rising inequality that we've seen. Um, and as you note, you know, one of the groups in society that's been really hit are older women um, who don't have their own home, um, who have, for structural reasons, um, not acquired 
um, the kind of level of superannuation or private savings that can secure their future and finding themselves literally in their, um, as, as they're approaching retirement age, facing actual homelessness and the inability to have secure homes. So um, it, it is, yes, building new homes. It's doing this partnership model and the community housing model, but it's also ensuring that we lift and we urgently lift the level of support um, so that nobody in a country as wealthy as ours is actually thrown into homelessness and poverty. I also feel very concerned as large numbers of men of increasingly lower age living on the streets as well, often through alcoholism, mental illness, housing crash, relationship breakup, number of reasons, as you know. Um, there are a lot of people in quite urgent circumstances and homeless now. I presume that the Greens would include them in that package of urgent assistance. Well, I mean, the whole concept is nobody in a country as wealthy as ours should be living um, homeless in abject poverty. Um, I'm personally a very strong believer that we, we, have, we need to be on a pathway towards having a universal basic income so that everybody has a degree of security, a, a guaranteed degree of security um, um, going forward. Uh, but the pathway to that is a much more universal um, approach to, to uh, social security payments, minimum $80 a day for people to survive on, whether they're a student or not, um, whether they're young or old, a minimum $80 a day to survive that, on. That would include, yeah. include homeless people receiving Centrelink benefits? Absolutely. Um, for me, um, getting rid of the, um, the, 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 the regime within Centrelink that actually polices and penalises people for being poor, um, the, the appallingly unproductive use of private jobs network providers, um, we basically dismantle that structure and instead return the money that's otherwise spent in that space directly to benefits and support. It's time we started helping people without sufficient income rather than penalising them for being poor. Absolutely. So let's talk about the numbers you need to make all this happen. Okay, to kick the coalition out, we need to elect 76 MPs in the 150-seat House of Representatives who are prepared to vote for an alternative government, right? Indeed. Okay, so you've also, said, you've also said that there's only a few seats in it and that it's coming down to just a few hundred votes each and that with supporters helped the Greens could have a record 12 senators running the 2022 election. So help me out with the maths here, David, because that gets a bit yeah. confusing for some <laughs> people. So where are those seats? Where have your record 12 candidates come from? And how does that 12 Greens mm. votes out of 76 translate into actually having to push and shove to get legislation passed on the floor of Parliament? What, what's the kind of... Mm. deal that we make and, and the numbers that we see when those things are happening on the floor. Yeah, so we're, we're talking now about the makeup of the Senate and the, um, the, the, the Senate has what's called half-Senate elections. So each state sends 12 senators, each territory sends two, um, and um, um, half of the chamber is elected each time. So in New South Wales, at the last federal election, we had Maureen Faruqi elected um, as a Green senator. And the good news is she's halfway through her term. So this election won't affect her spot. She'll continue through till the election after this. Um, and right now, um, the, the Greens um, have two senators, uh, each elected at, you know, alternate elections in WA, in Victoria and in Tasmania. 
Um, and we only have one senator, though, in, in South Australia, New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, and um, this is our first and best opportunity to get a second senator elected in each of South Australia, New South Wales and Queensland. If we do that, we will have a record 12 senators in the federal Senate. Um, I hope, obviously, to be one of those 12. And with 12 senators, um, uh, we are within a whisker of having the balance of power in our own right. Now, it may be that we need one or two other votes together with either together with a, a Labor minority um, um, in order to hold that balance of power, but the overwhelming block in the balance of power will be Green senators. Now, I find that a really exciting prospect. I've been part of a shifting balance of power in the New South Wales Parliament, in the New South Wales Upper House for the last few years. And I've got to say, we've been able to achieve quite significant, um, particularly oversight roles, um, um, as well as, you know, significant policy and legislative wins by having even a shifting balance of power where, where the Greens are only, you know, one part of a, a very complex balance of power in the Upper House in New South Wales. I know what we can do with that power. Um, I know how we can use it effectively to, to force concessions and force policy change out of a minority government. Um, and if we match that with more Greens in the lower house and being in the balance of power in the lower house as well, with additional seats like Richmond on the north coast of New South Wales, additional seats in, in, in metropolitan Melbourne and in metropolitan Brisbane, and I think we have a prospect in all of those places, um, I find it a really exciting prospect and, um, and, and that's a place where we have real political power and the ability to actually, you know, reshape the federal agenda. And, and in New South Wales, of course, the risk is if it's not a Green elected to that last spot, that last Senate spot, the danger is it's a right-wing fringe party like One Nation or Clive Palmer who takes that spot. And that could actually throw that whole prospect about getting a, a, a progressive balance of power in the federal Senate, that could throw it into disarray. So what we do here in New South Wales really matters. Um, it could well come down to a choice between the sixth senator being a Green or the sixth senator being a right-wing um, um, micro uh, and with all the policy damage that would cause. I'd like to talk briefly about how the 2022 campaign is shaping up. Now, it's widely expected to be a Category 5 hazmat toxic campaign, full of slush funds and attack ads and all the rest of it. Now, your Greens colleague, both Kate Fernman and Cassie O'Connor in Tasmania, have said the Greens do a good job of looking after their people. In fact, a better job than most, but it's a big ask for any candidate, is it? Isn't it? Can you talk to us about what support mechanisms the Greens have in place both during these types of campaigns, yeah. the candidates and their families, and when indeed when they're successful, how they can maintain. Well, well, I've yeah, I've always thought that our, polit our politicians, our MPs, are only as good as the community and the party machine, that the party organisations around them. Like, I, I, my view about how we get change in politics is, isn't through a bunch of clever MPs, although I think that's useful. Um, it's actually engaged MPs who bring big, powerful community campaigns into the centre of politics, empower them and bring them onto the floor of parliament. That's how we actually get change. Um, so I always like to make sure my politics is, is, is embedded in those community campaigns, and I draw a lot of strength and support from that kind of community campaigning. And, you know, I believe it's a part of how our party operates in New South Wales and New South Wales Greens. So I never, 
really feel like I'm alone on the floor of Parliament, nor do our Greens colleagues. We always feel like we have hundreds of thousands and millions of supporters behind us in the work we do. But, you know, we have just come through um, an 18-month-long local government campaign in New South Wales. That was, a, that was an election that was meant to be held at the end of 2020, yes. then got deferred to September in 2021, and then got deferred again to December in 2021. And I, I, I recall working with those local government candidates, you know, into their 18-month campaign and just saying to them, you've just got to keep standing, you know, you've just got to keep doing it um, because it can be quite exhausting and, um, and it can be, you know, it takes a real personal toll. But I think the way we respond to that is we've got good training. Um, we are increasing the sort of training that we give to candidates so as they, um, are, you know, they're not only more aware about the policy issues, they're better at dealing with people and handling people and handling the complexity of a modern campaign. And um, we make sure we're with them along that, what can be, you know, a very unpredictable pathway in the federal election. Um, but, it, but it has to also come with that commitment to standing by our MPs when they're elected and supporting them when they're elected as well. So um, it's always a collective effort. It's, you know, if we get elected, there's not going to be some magic parliamentary driven solution to things as intractable as the climate change. It's going to have to be that partnership between engaged politicians and empowered, active community members that gets us through the next three years. You do certainly have a lot of grassroots support, more than ever, I think, because people are seeing firsthand not only the effects of climate change, but the absolute shredding of the economy by both the state and federal mismanagement of the COVID crisis on just about every single measure you can think of. A lot of people really want to help you with this campaign, but not a lot of people have a lot of money. In fact, a lot of people have no money and want to find other ways to contribute. So whilst we always encourage people to contribute financially to campaigns that they support when they can, can you give us some ways that people can otherwise help? But as you said, we need to encourage them to support their own candidates and, and to treat them well so that they feel empowered to keep running. But what else can people in the community do at a time when everybody's mm. so stretched for resources? Yeah, well, the first thing I'd say is, we, I don't want to be sent to Parliament by a bunch of billionaires donating to my campaign. That's not how I want to get into Parliament. <laughs> not how I want our party to get into Parliament. Um, you know, donations as low as 5 or $10 collectively, cumulatively, over hundreds of thousands of people make a fundamental difference. Um, and, and, you know, that's the pathway that I see for us being able to pay for our campaign. But you're quite right. Many people are struggling, you know, um, to 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 even just keep a roof over their heads and keep them and their family fed. So um, we look to other support as well. Um, you know, openly sharing our our social media messaging um, when we put on campaign events. You know, pandemic um, uh, dependent upon the pandemic, coming out and attending um, those campaign events, talking with your workmates and your friends and your family. Because actually what we do know is one of the most powerful ways of changing a person's position on politics is through those one-to-one -one interactions with people they trust, their friends, their families, their workmates. So um, not being shy to talk about politics and not being shy to say, actually, you know, that we don't have to pretend that it's just a sort of um, bipartisan solution of either the, the coalition or Labor, which is slightly less shit than the coalition. Like <laughs> there actually are alternatives um, genuine alternatives who want to remake the, our economy and, yeah. and want to remake it based on fairness and, and explaining to people 
if you're doing that, how you can vote one Greens and if you're concerned about, you know, where that vote will go, put in a number two for the Labor Party or whichever other party you want to put as number two to ensure that your vote isn't lost because preferences actually do work. So, you know, I, I, do, I don't want to underestimate how important those one-to-one political messages are and how powerful people can be if they sit down and talk with their neighbours, their friends and their workmates. Absolutely. The best way bit, to change starts in mind, more, educate your heart and mind. It can be a bit more tricky with your family, but I'll leave people to use the expression in regards to that. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today, David. It's, it's been great to talk to you. I'm glad to see that you're okay and that everyone in your family is okay after you've recovered from COVID. That was New South Wales Greens MP David Subri talking to us about the balance of power and how we might be able to turf out the LNP government at the next election, something which my viewers in particular are particularly anxious to do. This is Suzanne James for Green Left. Thank you for joining us. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.com dot org dot au